0: God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from Christ Place. Here's Pastor Rick Lorimer. Now, it was roughly about 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, I was invited to join a small group of pastors to visit the persecuted church in eastern Africa, northeastern Africa. And uh, I found, first of all, I just was super honored, and then I got super excited Because I thought this would be a really good, I've heard about the persecuted church. I don't know that I had really known very many believers who lived in a hostile environment to where their life could be taken any given day. And so I I was looking forward to, I thought, I I just knew I'd be a better pastor. If I could meet some other pastors that lived in that environment, I'd be a better pastor to meet believers who live in that environment. So I said yes. And as preparation for this trip to visit the persecuted church, uh, they gave me a live dead devotional. It was written by one of the founders of the Live Dead Missionary Movement, a missionary we support to this day. And the movement itself is all about sending teams of missionaries into hostile areas around the world where the gospel has yet to be preached. And many times they go there without a visa as a missionary. They go business as missions, or they find a way to get into that country. And uh, they, they put their lives on the line. So this whole journal is about living dead. In other words, we're dead to our old nature. We're, I'm reading this, this devotional, and it's about how we're crucified in Christ. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're to be, our lives are going to be spent for the gospel. And, and there's this ah, constant, like, ethos in this devotional that we're all called to go, but we're not all called to come home. So I'm on the airplane, and I'm just meditating on that. You know, that, I may say goodbye to my kids and my wife. I may not be coming home. And it, it started kind of stirring me a little bit of, okay, unsettlement, you know. And it wasn't long after we'd landed, and we took a little puddle jumper, a little plane, to northern Kenya, near the border of Somalia. And shortly after we deplaned, all of a sudden, there's a lot of commotion going on. And, and the leader of the group herd, herds us together and says, hey, we gotta, we got to pray, man, we got to pray. Just two blocks from us, see, we were trying to get there under the radar of Ab, um, Al-Shabaab. Um, they were active in the area we were going to. And just, just like minutes prior to us landing, they had gunned down, actually, I think actually as we were landing, they had gunned down, machine gunned down a Somali evangelist and a Kenyan pastor uh, in an intersection. So here we are in this dirt airstrip, knowing that, man, at any moment we could be attacked. And we had to pray. Do we stay? Do we get back on our planes? Well, we chose to stay. And interestingly enough, ironically enough, we went to a site where there was a Christian martyr uh, several hundred years ago that had died for their their Faith in that area of the world where persecution still happens. Uh, on that same trip, I was given the honor and the privilege to preach in a church, a small church in a very hostile neighborhood. Where while we're worshiping and preaching on this little tin roof church that didn't have walls around it, it, it wasn't uncommon for us to be pelted with stones while we're worshiping or preaching. And I'll be honest with you, it was a very eye-opening experience. As a matter of fact, when we landed in the U.S., you've seen people kiss the soil, you know? There was a part of me that wanted to go down and just kiss. I mean, we, we take our freedom so for granted in this country. We really do. And, but, but it was more than that. I realized there are people out there that legitimately hate us because of who we identify with. There are people that don't just hate us in the sense that they're going to isolate us or reject us or even persecute us, but they'll go to great lengths to kill us. Why am I bringing this up to you? Because the text we're about to read is like Jesus's live dead devotional with his disciples. He's getting ready to leave this earth and he wants them to understand the gravity of the moment. And what he's going to say to them is going to, it's going to jolt them. It's it, it, in some ways it's, it's extremely, um, it's, it, it, It's getting real, people. That's what's happening. And Jesus says, you guys got to understand what's ahead of you. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to John. Come on, John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 15. We've been walking through this. We're going to take it back up at verse 18. Listen to Jesus' live dead devotional. Here we go. Illustrates the Christian's relationship with the world. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute who? You. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know who sent me. He's referring to the Father. Verse twenty two: If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. Verse twenty four: If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and have hated both me and my Father. Listen to all that he keeps bringing up: the fact that they're going to hate us. Look at verse twenty five. But the word. That is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hate me without a cause. It doesn't make sense. There's no justice in it. Verse 26. But when the helper... Aren't you glad that Jesus puts a but right there? Amidst this hate, he says, But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from what? The beginning. Now... This conversation that Jesus is having has, is, is an extended conversation. Uh, many of us are familiar with what's called the, the, the Last Supper. Well, that's just taken place. And some theologians believe that Jesus is still in the upper room. Now, we, we know earlier in, in one of the other chapters, they said, let's go. And so there's this assumption they're on their way to Mount of Olives. But, but we just don't know because, hey, listen, it's just, people can say, let's go, and they can still stay in the room. You know what I'm saying? I mean, my daughter can say, let's go. And we're still there for 30 minutes talking. I mean, so we, we don't know. We just don't know. So they're, they, they may be in the room. They may be walking. That's not really significant. What is important here is it's getting real. It's just hours away. Jesus is going to be arrested, brutally beaten, and then crucified on a cross. And it's getting real. And Jesus wants them to know what to expect. He wants them to understand they're going to hate him. And they're going to hate him. Excuse me. They're going to hate them, not because of them, but because of him. This is an important distinction. I think sometimes as Christians, we think that gives us an excuse to be a jerk. No. Jesus is saying to these guys, guys, they're not going to hate you because of all your flaws. They're not going to hate you because of where you stand. They're going to hate you because you have a relationship with me. It's like he's saying to Simon the Zealot, say, Simon, the world's not going to hate you because you killed Romans. The world's going to hate you because you love me. He's saying, to Matt, he's saying to Peter, hey, Peter, the world's not going to hate you because you're obnoxious, loud all the time, putting your foot in your mouth. The world's going to hate you because of me. That's what Jesus is saying. It's going to hate us, hate believers, hate Christ followers, not because of our temperaments or our personalities, but because of who Jesus is in us. Now, hate, how many you know hate is a strong word? I mean, we tried to teach our kids, right, babe? We tried, I say babe, my wife's right down here on the front row. I'm just not calling any woman babe, all right? Um, uh, We tried to teach them to not let hate live in themselves. I mean, hate produces rotten fruit. Hate is a cancer. It will destroy any joy in your life. Um, And so we we didn't want them to live with hate. We didn't want them to talk about hate or to hate anything or anyone. Hate means, it really means a passionate or intense dislike. In the Greek, the word that's being used for hate is missio, and it means to love less and less and grow to detest. In this context, it means to pursue with hatred. Its logical conclusion, conclusion leads to rejection and persecution. It's not simply an ignoring, but a targeted kind of hatred. And church is happening today. We're somewhat insulated, although I think we, it's, we're seeing more uh, our culture become opposed to those who have faith and have values and morals that differ from maybe the majority. So we're seeing some opposition in our own country, maybe that we haven't experienced prior to today. But for the most part, we don't experience the hatred that many of our brothers and sisters experience around the world. Did you know that in the last 25 years, more Christians have been murdered because of their outspoken faith of Jesus Christ than in the history of the whole church? That just in the last 12 months, over 5,600 believers have been murdered because of their faith in Jesus. That right now, 360 million Christ followers are severely persecuted because of their faith. And those numbers I give you come from the Open Door Ministries, and those are conservative numbers. I'm telling you right now, many of our brothers and sisters live every day with the threat of their life being taken from them. Can you imagine we lived these last three years with this world pandemic, knowing that not knowing that this virus would take our lives or what it would do, and we had people landing on different sides, and there's all this tension then and polarizing attitudes if we're going politics? And, 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 and people have come out of the last three years, and there's a lot of anxiety and it's post-traumatic stress syndrome almost from the pandemic. But can you imagine, since you were born, and since the day you gave your life to Jesus, you don't know that you'll live to the next day. This is what believers live with constantly all around the world. The term world, by the way, that Jesus uses here is the word cosmos, and it's spelled with a K in the Greek, cosmos, and it's where we get the word cosmopolitan, or even the word cosmos in English comes from this Greek word cosmos, and in this biblical context, it refers to the vast um, world system that exists independent of God, that's essentially opposed to him. It includes people and groups of people who are alienated from Christ. So I think most of us could draw conc- some, some conclusions why the world would hate Jesus. But I want to dive into it a little bit and give you three quick observations as to why the world is so challenging to live in and why it does have this adverse, awkward relationship with Christ's followers. So why is our relationship with the world so challenging? And I think there's some good theology here and I would love for you to reflect on this and I hope it will help you navigate the world itself. Here we go. Three observations. The first one's this. The world is ruled by Satan. I mean, that, that's just kind of right there, right? I mean, if it's ruled by Satan, it doesn't, we know it's going to hate Jesus. In 1 John chapter 5, the same author of the Gospel of John says this to us. He says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of who? The evil one. Jesus actually calls Satan the ruler of this world, In the chapter earlier in John's gospel, chapter 14, listen to what he says. Jesus is Jesus talking. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. I remember when we taught on that passage and now our heart is that the world has no claim on you. See, as the ruler of this world, Satan will use anything he can get a hold of, even good stuff if it can get you off script, if it can somehow get you from understanding your purpose in this life. See, as a ruler of this world, he's going to use, now catch this, you got to lean and listen to this, he's going to use ideas, morality, philosophies, psychology, desires, governments, political parties, culture, education, science, art, medicine, music, economic systems, entertainment, fashions, mass media, Uh, uh, he's going to use sports and agriculture and religions, and I could go on and go on. Now, none of those things are evil of themselves, but the devil would be a fool to not try to use them as the ruler of this world to somehow oppose God and hate you. That's what he wants to do. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verse 26, he says this, for what profits a man or a woman if he gains the whole cosmos, the world, but he forfeits his own soul? What, 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 what profits you if you get this world system down and you find your identity from your politics or your sexuality or you find your identity in, in, in um, uh, your workplace or in how many Instagram followers you have? What profits a person? They gain that cosmos and they lose their own soul. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul is trying to help the Christians in Ephesus understand because sometimes it feels like we're in this physical battle. I think every one of us would prefer to have a physical enemy or devil than a spiritual one. And so Paul's trying to tell the Ephesians, hey, you're not battling a physical battle. You're in a spiritual war where you're warring against principalities and forces of darkness that are not of this world. It's the the enemy the ruler of this world. He says, don't be deceived. Which kind of leads me to the second observation. Because the devil has an ally. See, he wants to appeal to our nature, our old nature, Here's number two. The world has a fatal attraction. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 2. He says this do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. As I was praying for us this weekend, I, I felt a burden from God that I feel like there are unfortunately many spiritually adulterous Christians hearing my voice. We love God. But we have this relationship with the world too. It's on the side. See, as long as we live in this world, we will have to die to our old nature, our pre-Jesus days, and allow the power of God to do a work in us. I want you to hear how John describes this personal battle we all have with the world and our, our old old nature. It's the verse that followed the one we just read. First John chapter 2, verse 16. This, listen to his words. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. Or some translations call it lust of the flesh. For this world offers only a craving for the lust of the flesh. A craving for everything we see, which would be the lust of the eyes or desires. And, and the pride of in our achievements and possessions, which would be the pride of life. And, and I love what John says. These, these things are not from the Father, but are from this what? This cosmos, this world, this this world of institutions and mediums and issues unfortunately our our old nature is tempted to live as close as possible without being taken out it's our old nature pre-Jesus to want to see how close we can get to the edge and still love Jesus I when I was preparing this, I remembered a time and I actually was texting a friend of mine who was with me on this little adventure uh, I grew up in a town called Papillion at the time it was pretty small less than 1800 people um, and one of the things we would love to do is we would, we would leave our home and walk down to downtown Papillion and we would hang out in Papio Creek. Papio Creek, you could, you know, fish for bull, bullheads or you could hunt for crawdads and, you know, or all that kind of fun stuff. And it was winter time. It would many times freeze over and you could just have some fun on the ice. Well, three of us went down there and it had iced over, although not completely in the center, you could still see water rushing through. And, and, and we were just kind of just on the banks and, and a little getting initially on the ice, making sure it was secure. But we had one guy amongst us. There's always one, right, who wanted to see how far he could go. So he just kept itching out and inching out and pressing on the ice and then taking a step, pressing on the ice and taking a step. And it's looking pretty secure. And then all of a sudden, before Todd and I, he's gone. He just went Poof, right under, took him right under. And the current started taking him down. And so Todd and I scrambled and together, holding hands, we were able to reach out and fish him out. And then we're just all soaked. My my point is this it's it's human nature to see how close we can get to the edge without crashing through. Because our nation, our nature is drawn to the things of this life. And this is what John is warning us of that we have this fatal attraction to the world. And it's ruled by Satan, yes, but his allies are sin and our old nature. <laughs> Jesus' half brother, man, he he put it this way. And this is this guy's this is kind of blunt, right? And this is offensive almost to some believers. But thats we've gotten so comfortable here in our own country, and we've we've flirted so much with the world that I think we fail to see that he's talking to us. Listen to what he says here in James chapter 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, man, Ezra, I, I have this picture of the Apostle Paul almost getting down on his knees, begging the church to beware. And he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice unto God, that you die to this, this world systems, you die to your own nature. And then he goes on in verse two and he says, and don't be conformed to this world, this cosmos, but be transformed. Come on. It's like, church, we have a God who gets excited about bringing transformation to our souls. We don't have to live one foot in and one foot out. We can be full on with Jesus, in love with Him, and let Him do such a work in us that we're a different kind of person. That the old man, the old person in us, is not ruling over our life. Hmm. See, the world's ruled by Satan. It has a fatal attraction to our old nature. Here's my third observation the world is not our home. The world's not our home. Listen to Jesus' words from the text we read earlier. The world would love you as its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. Now I love this. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. See, Jesus has been living his whole life with this understanding. He left heaven with one mission to rescue us from a meaningless life of existence that if left alone would implode with pride and selfishness. He never once allowed his roots to go so deep in the affairs of this life that he wasn't willing to give his life for us. The apostle Peter tried to drive this home to Christians who were being persecuted in his letter, 1 Peter. And he says, we're sojourners. We're just passing through this life. It's not our home. That we're not to get into relationship with things that really have no eternal consequence, that don't influence people towards righteousness and God. He says, we're to live as exiles. It's profound. In fact, we're to live as exiles because God's given us a new nature. We don't have, you know, the old man, we talk about how we're all sinners. And there's truth to that because our old nature is very simple. But do you know, like over 40 times, we're referred to as saints. You don't die and then become a saint. God has called you to sainthood today. Why? Because he's given you a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he is a new creation. Bam. Drop the mic. Boom. It's done. Look around and say, you're looking fresh. You're new. Don't you love the smell of new things? Don't you like new beginnings? Well, Paul's saying, if you're a believer, you're brand new. doesn't matter how old that body is. doesn't matter what you've gone through. You're a new creation in him. He says this, old things have passed away. It's not that they're going to pass away. They've passed away. The victory is already done. The apostle Paul used to refer to his old nature as the old man. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. But I was in jury duty uh, on Friday, Thursday and Friday. And I was hanging out with one. It was like a guy he's under 30 years old. And he kept calling his future wife his old lady. Um, just a tip to the guys. Never do that in front of your lady. And I wouldn't do it behind her back either. Um, But Paul referred to his old nature as his old man. And I kind of like that. Because every once in a while, our old man or old woman wants to rear its ugly head and get you to believe that the victory hasn't happened. That you're actually more tied to this world than you are to heaven and Jesus. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 6.6. He said, we know that our old man was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to what sin. When speaking to uh, the Galatians, Paul said this in Galatians chapter two, verse twenty. He says, "I am crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, I live; yet it's not I that live anymore. It's Christ in me." See, when the new na- the new nature that God gives us, here's what it wants to say. It, it wants to say that our motivation is no longer fueled by fear, but by faith. That when it comes to politics, it's no longer about protecting my rights, but about doing what is right. That when it comes to being offended, it's it's no longer about holding offense, but choosing to forgive. When it comes to getting angry, we respond with kindness. When our nature curses out someone who's driving crazy, like the new nature responds with helpful speech, like, bless you. (laughs) When it comes to the unknown, rather than being riddled with anxiety your old nature wants to consume you, wants to possess you with that, to not be able to sleep at night, to have to take medication all the time just to bring it all down. And the new nature wants to overwhelm what's overwhelming you because you have the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, we have this beautiful, beautiful opportunity to live a new life in Jesus. I love how Paul puts this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been, what? Crucified to me, and I to the world. So we, we have this weird relationship with the world. We're in it, but it's no longer our home. But as I was preparing to close this message, I, I thought, you know, okay, those are great observations. But, but church, Jesus didn't stop there in that text. He went on to be crucified, but he didn't stay on the cross. Come on. He didn't stay in the grave. And so he tells the disciples ahead of time, he says this, and Verses 26 and 27 of John, where we read earlier in chapter 15. Look at this. He says, but when the helper comes, I, I feel like I should just preach right there. When the helper comes. Do you know the helper? He's the Holy Spirit. Do you understand the kind? He wants to be experienced in your life. He wants to have a relationship with you. He's a person. He lives in you. He says, when the helper comes, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness. What's he saying? Well, to bear witness is great language. It means to expose what is true. And the Holy Spirit wants to expose the truth about Jesus to us and we in turn expose the truth about who Jesus is to our world. That's the mission. And folks, this is the victory we have. See, some of us are living with defeat but God's giving you a victory in a new nature. He wants you to walk out of here changed with a new perspective. The world needs you filled with the Holy Spirit bearing witness of who God is and what He's done in your life. See, here's what I know, man. What Jesus did publicly... He didn't do it publicly, so we would live timidly. How many of you know Jesus is better at saving than you are at sinning? Grace wins, and God wants you to have victory in your life. Your testimony matters. The Holy Spirit wants you to bear witness to others. I know some of us don't know how that, what that looks like, or we're, we don't feel like we're good with words. The Holy Spirit is, and he'll help you. He'll help you. I, I love how Paul put it to the Corinthians in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He said this, but thanks be to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone say victory. victory. The victory. Paul goes on to say, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the works of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor's not in vain. That word victory is important. Thanks be to God for victory. It's so important. It's the word nikos. And it's always associated with a conquest. And whenever it's used in the New Testament, it's associated with the conquest that a believer has because of Christ, of what he has done. See, we have victory in Christ. We have victory over sin, and our old nature. Jesus conquered the powers of darkness. He, the, the world has no hold on us anymore. When Jesus says, it is finished, Jesus didn't say, I am finished on the cross. He said, It is. And it is the world and sin and the dominion of hell. It's finished. I've come to do what I was supposed to do. You're liberated. You have a life before you that you're to live with a sense of victory. And if you're not living that way right now, our prayer team will be down here earlier. And I want you to get prayer. I want you to leave here knowing that, that you have a you have this new nature as a believer. Now I'm going to close with this story. By the way, there's a book that was given to me called "Don't Let the en- Don't Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table" by Louis Giglio. Giglio. And I, I read the story in that book, and it's it's a great book. I highly recommend it. But he encouraged us. He said that word Nikos with victory. It's, and so he took a story from our own history as human beings. It took place during World War II. And so here's what I want you to do this. These last few minutes together. Picture the victory you own as you're standing on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day plus one. D-Day was June 6th, 1944. So D-Day plus one is the term given to the day after D-Day. So it's now June 7th, 1944. Up until this moment... Hitler had dominated and conquered Europe. G-Day was the largest amphibious invasion in military history. More than 156,000 Allied troops stormed the shores of Normandy coastline, pushing through a hell of Nazi machine gun fire, grenades, and more firepower. Tragically, 4,400 Allied troops lost their lives on June 6th. Yet by nightfall, the victory had been won. Historians agree that D-Day marked a decisive turning point in the war. Thanks to the actions on D-Day, the outcome of World War II shifted significantly. The destiny of the entire world changed. The trajectory of the world changed. So imagine you're there on D-Day plus one. You're standing on one of the beaches the day after the huge bloody invasion. The overall war has been decided. Hitler's power has been broken. There's no way he can win now. But you know, it's not in Hitler's nature to give up without a fight. He still thinks he can win. So over the next year, you still need to struggle in the fierce battle of Operation Market Garden and you still got to hold the frigid line in the Battle of the Bulge. There are yet battles that that you're going to have to participate in when it comes to forging your way through occupied German territory to free the horrid concentration camps. Hitler's lost but there are battles still to be fought. On D-Day Plus One, you'll need to get Your mind around this truth. And church, this is what I want to, want to leave you with that even though the war is over, some of your toughest fighting is ahead of you. See, in your spiritual life, Jesus gives you the Nikos, the victory. He gives you his accomplished work on the cross. He's defeated sin and the world's hate. He has established a beachhead of victory so you can move forward here's the thing that i think is so encouraging that we do know we no longer fight for victory church we fight from a place of victory and we need to bring into our soul and a daily it may be a daily discipline that we win though this world may at times look like it's overwhelming us or trying to defeat us no matter what it does no matter how hostile it gets we win jesus is coming back We win. We win. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Rick Lorimer from Christ Place. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.